Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Obviously, taking a chapter a week, you know, we can't dive into the intricacies of a book like Revelation, but hopefully each week we are giving you enough to chew on and enough to uh, sort of whet your appetite to dive into the book of Revelation and read it and study it for yourself. So last week we started out by looking at chapter 1, which is sort of the introduction to the book where John says, look, my goal in this book is to reveal Jesus Christ more than anything else. It is to uncover, unveil who Jesus Christ is. It is giving an accurate representation of who Jesus is. And everything else in the book is really based on that. As we see God moving all of the world to one day a, a worldwide acknowledgement of who Jesus really is. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we saw last week that Jesus is glorified when he is allowed to be seen for who he really is. That's true in our lives as well. And so that's why then when we come to chapter 2 and chapter 3 that we're going to look at next week, we see Jesus holding his church accountable. And the reason he holds his church accountable is, first of all, he is, we are told, the head of the church. There's a lot we could go into there, but we need to remember as part of local churches, whatever local church we are a part of, that Jesus Christ is to be the head of every local church, just as he is the head of the entire church represented all over the world of true believers. And that's why Jesus takes time to give a message to seven specific churches in these next two chapters. He does so because he wants to teach the church down through the ages, represented by these seven churches in some way. We can all take something away from these messages to, from Jesus to the church. How important it is that we allow Jesus to be the head of our church and to learn what it means to accurately represent him to the world. And that's why he holds these churches accountable and sends his message to them. Now, before we dive into it tonight, I have to share something from my heart tonight that I just think is so important when we start talking, though, about the local church. Because in my opinion, we live in a day and age where the importance of the church and being part of a church continues to deteriorate as far as seeing it from, I think, God's perspective. And, and the importance of the church continues to wane, even in, I think, the minds and hearts of Christians. So I, I would like to share something at the beginning here tonight to remind us of why the church is so important to Jesus Christ. Why he spends so much time in the last book of the Bible, dealing with his church before he deals even with the world of unbelievers. Why does he do that? He does it for this reason, and this isn't the only reason, but this is a really important reason why the church is so important. God obviously can work through individuals. He does. He works through us, hopefully, individually. And that's great, and God will always do that. And God will even work through families of believers, you see. But it is really important 
for believers to get the heart of God of being part of a local church because there is no entity on earth, including the family unit, including an individual Christian, that can accurately represent the reality of Jesus Christ more than the church can. And here's the reason why. Because even in a family, you don't have the diversity that you do in a local church, no matter what size. And here's the reason why that shows the reality of God more than an individual could ever show the reality of God on their own. Why it's not enough just to say, well, I love God and I worship Him and I serve Him. That's great. God can use you. He will use you. But that's never going to make the impact that the church can or that a family can. Because, think about this with me and and take some time even to think about this in the next couple of weeks as we talk about the church in Revelation. You're dealing with a body of people just like here at the Oasis, say, you know. And we all come from different cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds and whatever. And yet, here's how Jesus can be seen more clearly and and in a more real and powerful way in the church because it's only in the church when Christians are willing to really be part of a church and be unified even though there's so much diversity and be able to come together And work together towards a common goal. There is nothing that more powerfully says to the world, this is of God, like people from different backgrounds and different diversities coming together and being able to unify and work together. You see, there's no other entity like this. That's what makes the church so powerful. The world has no answer for that. What can unify a bunch of different people From all these different backgrounds, what can bring them together? What can knit their hearts together? How can they work towards... And this is what makes the heart of God grieve so much when local churches are disunified and when Christians are fighting with each other and when they can't get along and when they won't work together towards a common goal. Because the reason why Jesus Christ created the church was it was to be such a supernatural entity that could only be explained by the power of God and the Holy Spirit working that the world could not have an answer for all these different people coming together and being able to do something together. You don't have that kind of diversity even in a family. You certainly don't have that diversity within yourself, you see. And that's why, again, I try to encourage people, don't you get it? Yes, God can work through you. Yes, God can use you. Yes, God can use your family. But it's when we're willing to come together and work with people that, you know, are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than we do and have different perspectives and and come from different backgrounds and, and different even spiritual backgrounds and all that. And folks, we even see that in a small church like the Oasis. You start going around and getting to know people and go, what's your spiritual background? Just that go, well, you know, I, I you know, grew up in this kind of church and I grew up in this faith and and... Oh my goodness, and yet we come together as one. 
you see. And, and we work towards common goals. That is a powerful, powerful witness and testimony to the reality of God like nothing else. So that's why Jesus, in the very last book of the Bible, spends so much time holding these local churches accountable because he is saying to them and saying to churches down through history, don't you get it? The reason why I created the church was so that people could see, unlike any other entity that I could have created, how people can come together through me and through the power of the Holy Spirit and accomplish much if they're just willing to allow me to be the head of these churches. Which is why then, beginning in chapter 2, we're going to see a couple common things. Again, I'm not going to go down through verse by verse. It would take weeks. I could spend a week apiece on each of these local churches. The depth of the message is so great. But what I want to do is, again, just give you some things to chew on. So there, there are some things that, in a sense, Jesus says to every church that I want to touch on tonight. And then I want to go back and I do want to touch on one thing that was sort of the glaring weakness, if you will, about each of these churches and, and how we can apply that to our church and to our lives as well. First of all, you'll notice in each of these messages to the church, say beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus says this is a solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And of course, last week we said the seven golden lampstands were the seven churches. And so Jesus is walking amongst the seven churches. Literally, in the Greek language, he lives in a fixed position amongst his churches. That's how, first of all, not just being the omniscient God, but this is where his focus is. His focus is on his church, his churches, represented by local churches. That's how important this is to him. It's a fixed position for him. And he wants the church, all churches, to hear the weightiness, if you will, or to give weight. That's why the words solemn pronouncement from Jesus. If he truly is our head, if he is the one that is superior, if we are taking our cue from him, then when he talks to us as the head of the church, then we should listen. Notice he says the same thing in verse 8 to the church at Smyrna. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who was first and last, the one who was dead and has come to life. He describes himself differently to each church based upon his individual personalized message to each church, what they need. In verse 12, the church at Pergamum, this is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. The last church we're going to look at tonight, the church at the Tyre, verse 18, this is the solemn pronouncement of the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a fiery flame and whose feet are like polished bronze. Jesus is simply saying, what I'm about to tell you, because I'm the head of the church, I am the glorified Christ that was described by John in his vision in chapter 1. If you really believe that this is me, that this is the exact and accurate representation of who I am, then when I speak to the church, the church should listen, you see. Which is exactly then what he says at the end to every church. Notice in chapter 2, in verse 7, 
to the church at Ephesus. He says, the one who has an ear. And he's not talking about a physical ear there necessarily. He's saying the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice again, he repeats this phrase to every church. Verse 11, the church at Smyrna. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 17, the church at Pergamum again. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then finally to the church at Thyatira. Very last uh, verse, verse 29 of chapter 2, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now a couple things, notice there. Jesus is the one speaking. But in his message, through his messengers to these churches, he's also saying, listen to what the Spirit says. Because Jesus is again reminding us that he, the Father, and the Spirit are one. Three persons, one God. And if Jesus is saying it, so is the Spirit. The Spirit will never say something that contradicts what Jesus or the Father would say. They are one and the same as far as, again, their unified message to the church. And so Jesus, even though he is obviously the one who's delivering this message, it's about him, it's from him, through his messenger to John, to the churches, Jesus is also reminding these churches, listen to what the Spirit says. And that's really what he's trying to to convey to the church. Are we listening to what the Spirit is saying through the Word of God? Are we truly listening? This was such an important value to me when I studied the book of Revelation years ago that many of you know, like especially if you have one of our bumper stickers and stuff, that, that you know, we've written out sort of our core values as a church is love, listen, learn, and launch. And obviously one of those four is listen. <laughs> how important it is to learn to listen to God and to each other. And it's something that, you know, human beings, I think, we do less of. We like to hear ourselves talk. But many times we're not very good listeners. And Jesus is saying to His church, better listen. Better listen to what I'm about to say because I'm coming, evaluating you as a church. I'm holding you accountable and I want them to direct, advise, command, and exhort you in certain areas. I'm going to meet you exactly where you are. And so this is the message he gives to every church. You'll notice then back up in chapter 2, verse 2, to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know, I know your works. Then he says, even down in verse 3, I am also aware that you have persisted steadfastly. He says the same thing to every church. Notice verse 9 to the church at Smyrna. I know the distress you are suffering. Over in verse 13 to the church at Pergamum. I know where you live. And then down in verse 19, the church at Thyatira. I know your deeds. Jesus is simply reminding His church, I am the omniscient Son of God. Again, I am the glorified Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is who I am. Therefore, I have perfect, intimate knowledge of everything that goes on in every church. I know your attitudes towards each other. 
I know your love or lack of it towards each other. I know how you treat each other. I know what your strengths are. I know what your weaknesses are as a church. I am intimately connected and involved and aware of what's going on in every local church. And I want to be the head. Are we as a church allowing Jesus to be our head? Are we listening to him through his spirit, take his word and teach us and exhort us and advise us and command us. That's the main way we let him be the head, you see, of the church. And we all have to realize he knows. He knows where we're at. We can fool other people as far as our level of commitment and devotion and all that, not just to God, but to each other, to our church, whatever. But Jesus knows everything about our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and how we are making up the church and what kind of benefit and profit we are being to the church. Are we truly, you know, serving Him through the church? Are we being a good church I hate to use this word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Member. Because I'll just, some people ask, why does the Oasis not have membership? I tell them, well, do you see church membership in the New Testament? No. Because unlike down through history, it was taken for granted in biblical times that if you were part of the church, you were part of the church. There was no such thing as you needed to have membership or not membership. And like I've told you before, I even grew up in a church that had active and inactive members. That's a foreign concept to God. There's no such thing as an inactive member of His church. So, you know. I know. We just need to be reminded, I know, Jesus says. And the other thing he says to every church is, he promises a reward for those who overcome in each and every message to, the, to his church. You'll notice again in verse 7, the first church, to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. To the church at Smyrna, he talks about the fact that uh, they have conquered. And then, I'm looking for these because I didn't necessarily mark them. In verse 17, to the church at Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And he goes on to talk about the reward he will give to them. And then finally, to the church at Thyatira. In verse 26, he says to the one who conquers and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. In other words, we will rule and reign with Christ. I want to point this out. I look at these words from Jesus to his church, not as, as words to a, to a super special group of people within each church. I look at these words as a reassurance to any true believer in Jesus Christ in those churches. What he's doing by using these words is simply reminding every true believer, and I realize in every local church, you're not going to have every 100% believers. That's never going to happen. We understand that. But Jesus is talking to his 
church and to those who are truly his. And he's saying, do you realize who you are? You are one who can and should overcome and conquer. In other words, whatever you have to deal with to be part of my local church and to be effective and to live for me and to exactly represent me before the world, you can overcome and you can conquer because you have me. We see this throughout the New Testament. Listen to these verses. I'll take the one from Romans first. Paul says, in all things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. To the church at Corinth, Paul says this, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John writes in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, Because everyone who has been fathered by God, everyone, not just some, everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. See, throughout the New Testament, Jesus, through his messengers, tells his people, you are conquerors through me. You can overcome anything through me. Live who you are. Realize who you have in you and the power and the strength that you do have and be encouraged by that. That even though you are struggling with things and maybe even struggling with each other within your churches and all of that, he's saying, you can overcome this. You can conquer this because you have faith and you just need to keep trusting in me. You see, obviously there's an initial faith that brings us to Christ, but there's also an abiding faith that we have to keep believing even after we become a Christian. And I think that's the kind of faith that John's talking about. In 1 John, when he says, this is the conquering power, it's our faith. It's keep trusting, keep believing, keep placing our confidence in God. So he makes this statement to every church and says, for those who are true believers, here's what awaits you. Here's the reward. And again, they're different. But again, a similar message, a similar message, solemn pronouncement. He who has ears to hear. To the one who overcomes, and I know, they're found in every message to every church. But here's what separates the churches. Because again, just like Jesus deals with us individually, He meets us where we are, He does the same with every local church. For instance, if Jesus gave a specific message to the church at the Oasis, it it would be designed just for us. It would you know, meet us right where we need to be hit. And the, the cool thing about Jesus here is if you read these messages to the church is though, even though most of the time he has something that, that bothers him and alarms him about what's going on in these local churches, he always starts out with commendation first. He always starts out in every church with, here's the things you're doing well. Keep doing them. That's a good pattern. That's a good thing. You know? I mean, that's a great thing even for parents. That's a great thing for leaders. If you're having a tough conversation with somebody underneath your leadership, before you dive in and maybe start being critical or, or maybe 
trying to talk to them about something that could be done better, first, why don't we start out by commending them and talking to them about all the things they're doing well? Wouldn't you love your boss to do that? (laughs) You know, before they start being critical and talking about the things maybe you don't do well, how about talking to me about all the things that I am doing well and, and commending me for that? Jesus does that in every instance. Again, I'm not going to take the time to go through all those tonight. But I do want to hit on what I think are the important things that Jesus says was missing in each church. And I want to begin actually with the last two churches tonight for this reason. These are pretty straightforward, more than the first two are in this way. Remember, in these messages to these churches, Jesus is holding his church accountable Because they need to be an accurate representation of who he is. If a church begins to not be an accurate representation of who he is as a lampstand to shine who he really is out to the world, then he's going to come and he's going to speak to us through his word and he's going to correct things so that we can be a more accurate representation. He will do that individually. He will do that corporately. So the first one I want you to take a look at is the church at Pergamum. And in verse 14, after he commends them in verse 13, here's what he says. I have a few things against you because you have some people there in your church who follow basically with false teaching. Let's cut to the quick teaching of Balaam, false teaching. And then notice he goes down the same thing in verse 15. In the same way, there are also some among you who follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans. False teaching. And so Jesus is saying to this church, the church at Pergamum, you have people within your church who are teaching false doctrine. And you have people in your church at Pergamum who are following false doctrine. And you've got to understand from me the way, the truth, and the life. That any departure from the truth of God and what He has revealed then will not represent me accurately to the world. That's why God takes false teaching so seriously. Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and any church departs from The simple truth of God's word and either takes away from it or adds to it or twists it or whatever, then that church is not accurately representing who he really is to the world and therefore he cannot be glorified as he should be. That's why we are going to strive to just stick to the word. Because when churches begin to deviate from the word, Jesus is going to have the same problem with them that he had with the church at Pergamum. Do not tolerate false teaching and false doctrine. A little bit of false teaching and false doctrine gets into the church and people start teaching that and people will follow it. And then pretty soon you've got these people within this local church who now are in a bad place spiritually because the leadership and the church has allowed it. And so Jesus says, this needs to be corrected. This needs to be corrected. In fact, he talks about in verse 16 to the church at Pergamum. If you do not repent and change your mind, which 
The word repent not only means a change of mind, but it also means a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Like John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit befitting repentance. Jesus said, therefore repent. If you don't change, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth, my word. And you're not going to like it. So that's the message to Pergamum. You're doing some things well, but here's something you need to take a look at. In a way, the same message is to the church at the Tyra. They are tolerating false doctrine, which is leading to compromise and, and, and sexual immorality and all kinds of, of bad behavior. It reminds us that bad doctrine leads to bad living. Going back to my message Sunday, loose thinking leads to loose living, which is why we need to tie up our thoughts. So notice what Jesus says to the church at the Tyra. Pretty strong message. Verse 20, we'll start there. After his commendation, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate, you permit, you allow this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, a spokesperson for God. And by her teaching, she is deceiving my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The word deceives means to lead astray, to lead away from truth into error. Notice Jesus says, I've given her time to repent, but she's not willing to repent of her sexual immorality. So I'm going to come in judgment. And basically Jesus is saying to this church, look, you're doing some things right, but man, you are missing the mark by tolerating this false teaching, which is leading to immorality in the church. One of the things that hopefully curbs immorality even in the church is right doctrine, right teaching. It's not going to totally do it, but it's certainly going to, to create an atmosphere and an environment of, of reverence and respect and awe for God that hopefully then causes people to maybe at least pause before we make some huge mistake. And so Jesus says, this is what I have against you. Both the church, again, at Pergamum, the church at the Tyra, is sort of similar. And it reminds us again of how important teaching and right teaching is. Because two of these messages to two churches really involve allowing or tolerating bad, false doctrine and teaching in the church. But then I want to take you back to the first church, the church at Ephesus. This is just an opposite problem. But again, by falling out of love with Jesus, they're not accurately representing him to the world either. But here's the, here's the contrast between Ephesus, this church, and the two churches we just looked at. Doctrinally, oh my goodness, they had everything right. I mean, they were as orthodox as you could get. There's nothing wrong with their doctrine. In fact, notice what Jesus says to them. I'm just going to read this. He says in verse 2, I know your works as well as your labor and your steadfast endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles, but are not, and have discovered that they are false. I am also aware that you persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, 
and have not grown weary. So he's commending them. Hey, unlike these other churches, doctrinally, man, you're right on. You, you've, you know, you've held the line doctrinally. But in maybe one of the most famous messages to a church, here is what Jesus says in verse 4. But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. The word departed means to let go of, to disregard, to abandon. The words first love means the most important relationship. In other words, Jesus is saying this. And this is something as a church, especially who tries to be all doctrinally correct, we need to hear. That a church can be right on doctrinally and yet can be so orthodox that we are cold towards Jesus. And Jesus is saying to this local church, you may have everything right doctrinally, but there is a coldness in this fellowship because you are not placing me as the most important relationship in your life as a church. You have allowed other relationships to take the place of me. And Jesus says, any church that does that, any Christian that does that, then in no way can accurately represent to the world who he really is. Listen, if Jesus Christ really is who John portrayed him to be in chapter 1, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Ruler of the Kings, if he's this great, if he is this one, And none of us, either as a church or as individuals, make him the most important relationship, then what we're saying is we really don't believe he is that. Because if we really believed he was who he's revealed to be, wouldn't he be the most important relationship in my life? Absolutely. If I really believe that he is being accurately represented in Revelation chapter 1, then my goodness... There could be no one more important to me than him. So when Jesus in a church or in an individual's life becomes less than first place, then basically what we're representing to the world is he's not as great as he's revealed to be. It's when we put God first that we show others he's awesome. He's amazing. He's majestic. He's greater than we could ever imagine. And I live that way and I put him first because he is who he is. You see. And that's why Jesus had a problem with the church at Ephesus. And Jesus goes on to say, you need to repent. You need to go back and you need to do the things you did at first whenever you first came to know me and you first fell in love with me and, and you know, reading the word and praying and getting together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and serving me and whatever was, was almost no effort at all. It was effortless because you were in such love with me that, that it just flowed out of you. But now, you may have doctrinally everything right. You may be correct. But there's a coldness. Because you've left the most important relationship in your life. Me. And there's no amount of doctrinal correctness. There's no amount of ministry and service and all of that that can make up for any church or any Christian leaving our first love and not making Jesus the most important relationship in our life. 
But then I want to spend the last few minutes we have here at the church at Smyrna, beginning at verse 8. And the reason I want to do that is out of all these seven churches that Jesus deals with in Revelation 2 and 3, this church at Smyrna is the only one still in existence. That says something. And I think you're going to see why. And hopefully that will be an encouragement to you. Because out of all the churches that Jesus deals with, this is the church that suffered the most. <laughs> well, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, we look at suffering as, a, as such a bad thing and such a negative thing. And yet Jesus here, even in this message, is teaching us the importance of suffering and being tested because it actually makes us stronger. This is one of only two churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus doesn't have basically a bad thing to say about. But notice what he does say, and I want to take the full message because it's pretty short. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last. The one who was dead but came to life. I know the distress you are suffering. The word distress there means pressures. Remember, it's a Greek word that talks about being pressed like grapes. It's the way our lives are sometimes. Things begin to close in and we just all of a sudden feel this pressure. God allows that. Because what God wants to do in all of our lives and even in our church's lives is to build such an internal strength that no matter what pressure is exerted from the outside, we have the internal strength through Him to be able to resist whatever external pressures are coming against us. So Jesus says, I know the pressure that you are suffering. And your poverty. There's many different words to talk about poor and how poor. This is the word in the, in the Greek language that speaks about being the poorest. In other words, this church was destitute. That's what the word means. They were, they were financially and maybe as far as, you know, things of the world and, and resources and stuff, they didn't have a lot. Now think about that in terms of, you know, the modern church. We measure success many times in American churches by how big they are, how wealthy they are, how much stuff they got and how much power and all of that that they can wield and the influence that they have in other ways than just spiritually. But I want you to notice tonight and next week in these messages to the seven churches, you will notice that Jesus never talks about how big or small a church is. That makes no difference to God. We might measure churches by that. And the reason I know that is because I've been a pastor for 29 years. One of the most, and I'm not saying all pastors' fellowships are bad. They're not. But many times through the years, I would get together with other pastors. And pastors, here's, here's the question that most pastors ask other pastors. Two questions. Nickels and noses. Reduced to nickels and noses. How much money do you have as a church and how many people are you running? That's how they measure things. That's how we measure things. You'll, you'll never see that in the Word of God. You'll never see Jesus measuring churches by nickels and noses. 
But somehow we've ended up there as how successful or prosperous a church is. No, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, I know you're destitute, but notice what he says. You're rich. Is Jesus crazy? No. Because Jesus is trying to remind this church and every church that maybe doesn't have all that other churches do. If you've got me, you are wealthy. If you've got me, if you've got God, you are abounding in resources. Because all you need is me. You don't need all this stuff to measure how wealthy and rich you are. You can be a church like Smyrna, and as far as the world's concerned, you can be destitute and have nothing. But if you've got me, you've got everything. That's something we all need to hear. And say amen too. That's right. Thank you. And then he says, I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not. Actually, Jesus says they are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa. I think he uses the word synagogue, obviously, rather than a church, because he's saying most of them are Jewish. So he uses the word synagogue there. But then he says this to this church at Smyrna. Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. Do not fear. And and the word also means don't hold back. Don't be afraid to stay committed and keep me first in your life, no matter what it costs you. Now notice, Jesus in a sense is saying to this church, you're destitute already, but guess what guys? You're going to even go through a, a period of even worse suffering. And he even says, notice, the devil is about to have some of you in Smyrna thrown into prison. Now notice something here. This is why I wanted to get to this, because this is important. God is sovereign. We believe he is who Revelation 1 says he is. He's in charge. He's in control. And yet you'll notice here, as well as many other places in the Word of God, that the devil can be used by God to accomplish his purposes. He did the same thing with Job. God was sovereign. He was in control. Devil wanted to touch Job. And God said, okay, I'll let you touch him. Because guess what? Ultimately, this is going to be for Job's betterment. He's going to be better off. So I'll let you do that, you see. This is why this is so contrary to the false teaching that somehow God doesn't want any of us to suffer. Oh, my friends, God sometimes wants us to suffer and will even allow the devil to bring suffering because God knows it's for our better good. Because notice Jesus goes on to say, because you're going to be tested by this suffering. And in that testing, we are refined. We are purified like never before. We are strengthened in these times of suffering. And that's why Jesus will allow even the devil to throw some of these people in Smyrna, in this small little destitute church that's already been through enough. And they're going to go through even more suffering. But guess what? That church is still here today. That church had a strength and an endurance that other churches didn't have. Maybe it was because of what they went through. 
Some of you are the same way and you know people the same way. You know some Christians, and and this is again the way our warped, again, perspective is sometimes when we don't keep it on, you know, from God's perspective. We'll look at Christians and and especially some Christians go, man, it seems like that poor Christian family or that, those Christians, it seems like they're always going through it. And we almost feel sorry for them rather than seeing it. God must be allowing it because guess what? They're getting stronger through it. Or at least that's God's intent. See, God can bring good things out of suffering. We bought the lie that somehow suffering is bad. We've got to avoid it at all costs. And Jesus is showing the church at Smyrna, this is going to be for your betterment and you're going to be better off for it. It's going to refine. It's going to purify you. Folks, in 29 years as a pastor, I've seen this firsthand even by experience. I'll give you a basic, simple example. I have seen either families or individual Christians over the years that, you know, got away from the church and became unfaithful and their Christian life got sloppy and complacent and obviously spiritual things weren't that important to them. And then all of a sudden some crisis of, of, of something physical or something or a doctor's visit or something came in and I'm telling you all of a sudden, man, they were back in church every Sunday. All of a sudden, they became super faithful. Well, what's wrong with that? You see, if that's what had to happen to get them back to getting the priorities of their life where they should be, you see. Well, I could keep going. Let me wrap this up. Jesus says, So that you may be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. Here's what Jesus says to this church. Remain faithful even to the point of death. The words remain faithful, we could say trust in God's promises even to the point of death. Don't be afraid. Suffering's coming. But you're going to be stronger for it. The fellowship at Smyrna is going to be stronger for it. You all are going to be strengthened through this and purified and refined. And even if some die, hold fast. Be faithful. Hold on. Don't stop believing. Because Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the crown that is life itself. Remember, I've shared this with you before. Folks, for Christians, for believers in Jesus Christ, whatever bad times we go through, it's the only hell we will ever go through. For non-believers who don't know Jesus, any good that they experience in this life is the only piece of heaven they will ever know. And then Jesus says, in verse 11, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. Folks, Jesus wants his churches, his local churches, to accurately represent him before the world. We are lampstands positioned by him to shine his light. He's going to hold his church accountable. He knows what's going on in each of his churches. And he wants to come through his spirit and through his word. And yes, commend us and encourage us, but also advise, command, direct, and even warn us 
about maybe some deficiencies that are existing in our church. And maybe even encouraging us like He did the church at Smyrna. By giving us a heavenly perspective. May we listen to what the Spirit is saying to us as members of His church. Let's pray. God, we thank You that we can have the privilege of being part of Your church. And Lord, not just the worldwide church of all believers all over the world that are united, but Lord, we know that You're talking here to local assemblies, local expressions, just like the Oasis and other churches here in this area who want to make You the head of their church. God, I pray tonight for all of us, no matter what church locally we are a part of, that God, maybe this message has stirred something within us and might even have reminded us about the importance of the local church and about why God holds it so important and what part am I playing as part of a body of believers? What am I contributing? How am I causing my brothers and sisters, to profit and benefit by my presence. God, you want to use us all. You can use us all if we'll simply surrender and make ourselves available to you. God, help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you next week, chapter 3.